All right, guys, um, we're back to reformational history. I'm sorry that I can't summarize what we did three weeks ago. We just don't have time for me to go back and do that. Uh, there's plenty to talk about uh, going forward. Um, let me just uh, try to get us going. Um, um, it was, I, I told you about two crises in Luther's life, the first in 1505. When um, uh, the lightning bolt knocked him to the ground and he cried out to St. Anne's, uh, save me and I'll become a monk. And, and uh, he, he did not die and so he became a monk. Um, that was the first crisis. The, the next one when he was ordained in the priesthood in 1607, I mean, um, he had his first mass, which was quite a crisis. You may recall that. And then there he is as a, as a monk in the monastery causing all kinds of problems because he took too much time in the confessional. We talked about that the last time, the, the, um, uh, the, the, the problem with the confessional and, and uh, the, uh, the solution being offered at that of doing penance. We talked about that. But so we, here he is, he's, um, it's 17, uh, I mean, it's 1508, 1509, something like that. And the leader of the monastery, Johann von Stoppitz, uh, decided that the one way to fix this overzealous monk was to send him to Rome. Um, uh, there was still in the Roman Catholic uh, um, scheme of things, the, the value in pilgrimage, particularly if you went to Rome, because Rome was, of course... Let me introduce you to a word. Um, reliquary uh, is, a, is a repository of relics. The, the, most, um, uh, the most abundant number of uh, relics in Roman Catholicism was, of course, at Rome. So Van Stoppitz thought, I, I can fix this overzealous monk by sending him to Rome and letting him on pilgrimage, pilgr- in his pilgrimage... Um, visit all of these sites of relics. Um, So he traveled in 1510 to Rome on foot, uh, there to perhaps get some some, uh, spiritual relief and to visit all of these sites uh, in this collection of relics there in Rome. The chief of which was what is known as the Scala Sancta. Um or Sacra, depending on your... Um, <clears throat> the Scala Sancta, the sacred stairs. They were the stairs um, uh, that supposedly Jesus had walked up when he was on trial before Pilate. They had been brought to Rome uh, during the Crusades, and there uh, they were in the Lateran Church in Rome, and by the way, are still there. I could kick myself. I've been to Rome, but I... Uh, I went through uh, the Basilica, but I, I really forgot about the Scala Sancta. They're still there, uh, but if you go to Rome and you want to go there, you better get in line quick because the line is enormous and uh, they're crowded, the, the Scala Sancta. Because, they're crowded because of this. Uh, in Roman Catholicism, it is said that if you go up these stairs on your knees, um, kissing the stairs as you go, repeating Hail Marys and Paternosters, uh, then at the top of the stairs, um, there is a plaque. A plaque that will tell you um, just how many years you have shaved off, not of your purgatory, um, but of a loved one's or a loved one uh, of your choosing. 
So if you do this, if you go up the stairs, you know, and Neely and, and, and kissing all the stairs and Hail Mary and Paternoster, and uh, it'll tell you at the top how many years you can expect to take off of somebody's purgatory. Now, hold that aside just a minute. <clears throat> um, when Luther arrived in Rome, uh, the, the trip um, that was uh, conceived by uh, von Stoppitz backfired. It backfired because Luther was exposed to some of the most raw disillusionment uh, in his ministerial life. Uh, he found there in Rome uh, immoral, the immoral lives of the priesthood. Um, there was prostitution, both male and female, um, going on among the priesthood in Rome. It was unprecedented um, corruption among the priests. There was the selling of their services. That is, uh, priests were making extra money by doing the mass for money. Picking up a, you know, a little cottage industry there, you know, making a little extra, a few extra bucks by saying mass for money. And I'm not supposed to do that. And then, of course, the Pope, uh, Julian, Julia, Julius II, was, um, if not the most corrupt, he certainly was number two. Uh, so that's what he found. And th- then, um, uh, overall in the, in the city of Rome, and then he comes to the Scala Sancta. And he does it. He does it just like he's told. He's told to go up on his knees and paternosters, yada, yada, yada. So he does it, just like he had been told to do. And uh, as he does, um, he gets to the top, he stands up, and he says, and he, he tells us this himself, who knows if this is true? He goes back down the stairs, goes ba- heads back to Erfurt, and he is a disillusioned man. That's somewhere around 1511. In 1512... Um, he was recruited, or somewhere around 1512, he was recruited um, to Wittenberg, which the term, the term Wittenberg means White Hill. He was recruited to Wittenberg by Frederick the Wise of Saxony. He was one of the electors. That is, he, he had one of the votes to, um, to select the Holy Roman Emperor. Well, um, <laughs> oh, you're not going to believe this. Um, Frederick the Wise uh, wanted to build Wittenberg, and it, he wanted to make it the, um, the biggest reliquary outside of Rome. He wanted to be in, in position number two next to Rome. And uh, Frederick the Wise had already gathered relics worth 1,902,202 years. Uh, he, he had a vast collection of relics there in Wittenberg, uh, some of which were a, a piece of straw from the manger. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I got to stop that. Um, he had a um, he had a hair out of Jesus's beard, and he had one of the branches uh, in Moses's burning bush. So. Um, uh, he, his star pupil, his star professor, was Martin Luther. He recruited there. Uh, along with this reliquary, Wittenberg became quite a site of uh, more pilgrimages. While in Wittenberg, um, Luther was, um, began to teach, began to lecture on the Psalms uh, in 1513. He developed a, uh, a, um, a hermeneutical principle, which is still in use, called the sensus literalis. Which, which means, and by the way, you should, you, should, you should follow this, in interpreting the scriptures, 
Um, the sensors little rattle states this. You always understand the scriptures literally where you can, where, where possible. But when Jesus says that he's a door, uh, that doesn't mean that he has a knob. But wherever you can, the, the scriptures, and that, that all came from Luther. That was not the way the scriptures were interpreted in the past, but um, they were interpreted that way. Um, uh, they've been that interpreted that way ever since. But that, that came from, from uh, Luther. Um, after the Psalms... Um, Luther was then assigned to lecture on Romans, um, on the book of Romans. Um, he was assigned to lecture on the book of Romans in um, uh, about 1515, which led to the, brought him to the, um, the supreme crisis of his life. It is called, ladies and gentlemen, the Tower Experience. And if you check it out, on, uh, you, can, you can Google that and you can find out everything I'm about to tell you right on, right on Google. Uh, but it was the supreme crisis of his life when he was assigned to teach the book of Romans. When he came to the book of Romans, when he began to teach the book of Romans, he came to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And this was the, um, the essence of, the, of his crisis called the Tower Experience. Let me read you verses 16 and 17. Uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That evoked the gravest crisis in the the life of Luther, known as his tower experience. Because for Luther, the righteousness of God terrified him. Terrified him. He was haunted by the specter of a righteous God no matter how hard he tried, that he would never be able to satisfy that God of righteousness. Um, The ultimate barrier for Luther, the ultimate chasm that existed, was the chasm between the righteous God and the unrighteous sinner. And um, then he noticed, as he studied studied to lecture on it, this this term, in it, um, for in it, In what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is on display. It is revealed. Um, And through that and a couple of other observations, the lights went on for Luther. He discovered or began to um, believe that the Bible teaches a righteousness that God in his grace makes available to all those who will receive it by faith. Not to those who are actively engaged in producing it and earning it. God does not make anyone righteous. He declares them to be so. He reckons them to be so. He, um, he counts them to be so 
as he imputes the righteousness of Christ to those who will receive it by faith. God gives freely righteousness to people who have none. Um, It is not my righteousness. It is what Luther called an alien righteousness. Not meaning by alien some kind of space creature, but it was it was not my righteousness. In, in, the, in the Latin, it's called extra nos. It's a righteousness that is imputed to me. It is a righteousness that God provides, that he makes available to all those who will receive it by faith. Luther said it was as if I was born again. Um, Um, It is that doctrine, ladies and gentlemen, that is summarized under the heading of sola fides, faith alone. And all of uh, this discovery of his and his, uh, well, it wasn't a discovery because Augustine had been teaching it, was teaching it in the the fourth century. Now, with that in mind, with Luther in 1505 up in his tower experience, Meanwhile, back at the ranch, there were two corrupt popes back to back, Julian II and Leo X. Leo ultimately died in 1521, right after um, uh, Luther, out of the the Diet of Wurms. But um, here's what happened, folks. Um, Julian uh, was a, in fact, is is called... um, a severe trial. I mean, Roman Catholicism calls Julian a severe trial. But Julian wanted to build another church. There was already the Lateran church there, but he wanted to build another one. Uh, it ultimately became St. Peter's Cathedral, if you've ever been to Rome. Um, but he had bankrupted the church. So um, he started it. He got the church started. But because he ran out of money, it stopped. And there it stood. The foundation was laid, uh, growing grass through the cracks, I guess. Then Julian, Julian died, and Leo X takes, uh, takes over. And um, it is Leo X to the rescue. He, um, he comes up with a fundraising idea as to how he might raise funds to, um, to build the church. It is called simony. Have uh, you ever seen that term? It comes from Acts 8, where a man by the name of Simon tried to buy the Holy Spirit with money. You remember that? Um, well, Leo comes up with the idea that he can raise the money by selling religious offices. One of the early buyers was a man by the name of Albert of Brandenburg. Albert of Brandenburg approached Leo X wanting to buy some, some religious offices And Leo sold him three, which was against church law. Number one, it was against church law because you're only supposed to have one apiece, not three. Um, And Albert of Brandenburg was too young to buy him in the first place. He was 23 years old. But Leo needed the money. And so he made a deal 
with Alberta Brandenburg. Alberta Brandenburg went out and borrowed 10,000 gold florins from the Fugger's Bank of Germany. Um, And to pay this back, um, I mean, that is 10,000 to buy the... Oh, Alberta Brandenburg bought three bishoprics. And so he paid 10,000 gold florins for them. Uh, He borrowed the money from a German bank. And to pay it back, this is big, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) To pay it back, Leo came up with another bright idea. They're called indulgences. Um, The idea, ladies and gentlemen... (laughs) is that Albert of Brandenburg was given permission to sell papal indulgences throughout all of Germany. And from the proceeds of selling those those papal indulgences, 50% would go to Rome and 50% would go to the German banks. Um... All of this was based upon, I meant, to, I meant to print this and bring one with me, I didn't. All of this was based upon the assumption that the Pope, that the Pope was in possession of the keys to the kingdom. One of those keys, which would open what is known as The treasury of merit. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you think I'm making this up, I, I challenge you to go to Google. I meant to just print off a copy and bring one in here with me just to show you that I forgot to. But if you, all you got to do is just put that in. Treasury of merit. Folks, this was not limited to the 16th century. It is going on today. Because the Pope has in his possession the keys of the kingdom. Now, what is this treasure of merit all about? Well, it is a repository of extra merit uh, earned by Jesus Christ, Mary, Joseph, um, I think some of the 12 apostles, and a few of the saints. And so into this, this treasury of merit goes this infinite supply of righteousness. No, infinite supply of merit or righteousness. And the Pope has the key. The key that he can go into the treasury and draw out of it merit that would allow you to spend less years in purgatory. Or you could buy them. You write a check and you can have some. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know that the wealthiest institution in the world today is the Roman Catholic Church? You know where that wealth comes from? You just heard. Um... So Pope Leo gives to Albert of Brandenburg 
permission to sell those indulgences in his territories in Germany to generate funds so that he can get some more money for uh, Rome uh, for Rome to build the, the basilica and to pay back the German bankers from which he borrowed the 10,000 florins to have the three bishoprics, all sold because of simony. Um, that power to extend um, or to sell indulgences was delegated by Leo X to Albert of Brandenburg, who then hires a man by the name of John Tetzel. You probably heard of John Tetzel. He was an Augustinian monk. Um, um, and he was the... Um, I'm, I'm sorry, he was, not a, he was a Dominican monk, I'm sorry. Uh, but he hires John Tetzel to go sell these indulgences. And boy, did he. Um, Tetzel will bring his show to town with great fanfare and pomp. He uh, was wise enough to use marketing principles. He even developed a little ditty that was sung um, as they were selling the indulgences. And it went like this. I don't know the tune, but here are the words. When the coin in the kettle rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You get the point of that? When the, when the sound of the coins, you know. When Luther heard about that, he was outraged. And he sat down and wrote 95 theses. Um, and he went to the city bulletin board, which was the church door of the castle church in Wittenberg, and he nailed those 95 theses on that church door, challenging Rome to, a, to an academic discussion over the abuses of indulgences. He did that on October the 31st of 1517. It was never his intention to split from the Roman Catholic Church. He simply was challenging Rome over the excesses of indulgences. That's all. Um, to prove that, the 95 Theses were originally written in Latin. Germans couldn't read that. Uh, it was not intended for the um, common man. It was intended uh, for the scholars so that he could enter into debate over the abuses of, of indulgences. Here's what happened. Luther's students, so excited, without, <clears throat> without Luther's permission or his knowledge, take the 95 Theses and translate them into German and print them, the, the Gutenberg Press was uh, in common usage throughout Germany by 1500. They, they, they translate them into German and print them, and they are spread throughout Germany in a matter of two weeks. Um, Tetzel and Albert of Brandenburg, as you can imagine, are furious. Um, 
And then Tetzel sits down and writes his own theses. And I think there were 35 of them. I forget, but... Um, when Luther is given a copy of Tetzel's 35 theses, he burns them in Wittenberg. Um, this activity of Luther's is reported to Leo X back in Rome. And, and um, <clears throat> Leo uh, is reported to have said, a wild boar is loose in the vineyard referring to Luther. But otherwise, Leo ignores it. In Germany, however, Luther is called to three big meetings. Um, in April of 1518, now that's only six months after nailing the 95 Theses. Six months after nailing the 95 Theses, he's called to a meeting in Heidelberg, Germany. At that meeting, a, a, a dispute erupted between the Augustinians and the Dominican monks, which basically uh, ruined the meeting and Luther was off the hook. Uh, later that same year, in Augsburg, um, he was called to another uh, examination. At Augsburg, he is interviewed four times by Cardinal Cajetan. And then let me raise the head and I'll come back. In 1519, in Leipzig, he's called to another meeting where he was examined by the, the, the greatest scholar and, and legal mind in all of the church. His name is Johann Eck, E-C-K. In these last two meetings, the, the one uh, in Augsburg and in Leipzig, both Cardinal Cajetan and Eck succeeded in maneuvering Luther basically into a corner. The corner that he was maneuvered into is uh, agreeing that indeed he had different positions to the Pope, that he disagreed with the councils of the church, and he, did, he also disagrees, disagreed with the execution of John Huss 100 years earlier. Now, you know, Huss was considered a heretic. He was burned at the stake. He was the one who said, you can cook this goose, but 100 years from now, a swan will rise. But now, after these two meetings, Luther has been, has been cornered by agreeing with Huss and opposing the Pope and the church's councils. This information from Leipzig, from Johann Eck in 1519, gets to Rome, and in 1520, Leo X issues a papal bull. Uh, it's nothing more than an edict. Um, and in 1520, Martin Luther is condemned as a heretic. It takes three months for that papal bull to get to Wittenberg. And when it is given to Luther, he burns it. And at that point, there's no turning back. That's in the uh, middle of 1520. Then, of course, having heard of Luther's response, the, uh, the church calls for another big meeting. 
uh, Frederick of Saxony steps in and says, we will not send our prized professor to Rome. He, he'll never make it out of there. And so he twists arms and uh, they come to the conclusion, or they, they agree to have the diet, the deet. Uh, it's just an imperial trial. The deet in Verms. Spell like worms, but it's Verms, Germany, and you've heard of the Diet of Verms. It was called by the Holy Roman Empire, or Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Charles V of Spain. Leo X could not um, attend because of health, and he died in 1521. Um, and uh, Luther is promised safe passage. Um, he arrives at Worms, Worms, and he goes into a room, and the meeting consists of the following. There is in the room a table piled high with Luther's books. Luther is asked, interestingly, by a, by a guy by the name of Eck, but it's not Johannach, Eck. It's a different Eck. I, I don't know where they came from, but it's a different Eck. But Eck um, asks him, are these books yours? He goes over to the table and uh, looks at the books, and he says, yes, they're mine. And uh, Eck then says, um, will you recant? The, the, the word was revoco. Will you revoco? And um, Luther responds by saying, what parts? I mean, surely you couldn't disagree with everything that's in those books. And they hated his response, and they asked him, they asked him to respond um, I, I love this phrase. They, they, they said, um, we want a response non-concurdum, which means literally no horns. Don't give us any fast talk. Um, will you recant? No horns, non-concurdum. And he said, um, can I have 24 hours? That is granted. He is put in a jail cell or a cell, a room guarded. And that night he goes through. In fact, he wrote a prayer and I've heard it read, but I, never, I have not been able to find it in print. I've heard somebody read it, but um, I wish you could hear it. How he commits himself to the, um, to the care of God. But anyway, morning rises, morning comes. Luther is brought back in. And um, he's asked one question. Revoco. And I think many of you know how he responded. Ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing more dramatically moving than this response. I should memorize it, but I haven't. His response was this. Since you have asked me to respond without horns... I will do so. Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or evident reason, I cannot recant. For my conscience is held captive to the word of God, and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me.
the room explodes. By the way, did you hear that sola scriptura is born in this response? You know, scripture alone, he says, um, uh, I am convinced, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or evident reason, I cannot, my conscience is held captive to the word of God, not to popes, not to your councils, not to the, your traditions. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. And to deny conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. The room explodes. Martin Luther is ushered out and sent back to Germany. On his way back to Germany, he is kidnapped. He is kidnapped and the kidnapping is staged by Frederick the Wise of Saxony. And Frederick's employees or whatever take Luther to the Wartburg Castle and there he spends the next 10 months in hiding, which is right outside of Eisenach, Germany. Uh, let, let me close with this because I think this is so cool. Um, Wartburg Castle is a castle that overlooks Eisenach, Germany. There is a path uh, that, I mean, Luther would, would sneak into Wartburg, I mean, to Eisenach, um, disguised. Um, and there is a path that is still there that I would love to walk one day uh, up to the Wartburg Castle. It's still there. And Luther would come down this, um, and he, he, he adopted the name Junker, Junker George. But in a bar one night, you know, he, um, Luther was a big beer drinker. Uh, he was, it was discovered who he was and by two um, people who were passing through Eisenach, I guess. Anyway, but anyway, the reason I raised Eisenach is Eisenach, about 100 years, I think it's 100 years, maybe, maybe 150 years later, there's another famous, there's, there's two famous people that come out of Eisenach. One was Luther. The other is Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, they went to the same school, of course, 150 years apart. I, I don't know how many years, but it was they, they were at the same school, but they um, um, just weren't there at the same time. But in, um, in the, uh, the uh, pieces of music written by Johann Sebastian Bach, in the left-hand corner, um, um, <laughs> there was a JSB, Johann Sebastian Bach. In the right-hand corner was an SDG. You know what that stood for? Sola Deo Gloria. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I went to Turkey to teach the five solas. We've seen sola scriptura. The doctrine of justification by faith is sola fides. There's sola dea gloria. These people were gripped with a gospel that told people that God makes available righteousness to those who receive it by faith. Here I stand. I can do no other. 
Our Father, uh, what a thrilling story it is, and, and um, all of it wrought by you and authored by you, and, and, um, and, I, and I pray, O oh God, that you would, um, you would um, give us an appreciation of the extremes to which you have gone to save us. Might we never, ever, ever take that for granted. Thank you for the thrill that is mine to explain and describe the beauties of the gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.